Sorry, I'm gonna. Sorry, if we can gonna, take a step back and take do a, that again. I'm gonna take a break. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So girlfriend walking. No, no. Was, it? Uh, I'll, I'll, I just I felt uh, animal in the zoo feeling. Oh yeah. <laughs> a little bit. Were people looking at us? I, I, maybe they were. I didn't even there. notice. I don't know. Okay. Try again. Hello and welcome to another edition of Design Exchange. Today with me is my good friend Dan Walton. Hello, hey Dan. Yep, yep. We've known each other a long time, but it's been a while. It's been a while. Uh, Dan has a long history in creative endeavors and startups. That's true. Uh, also, I can edit any of this. Sure, sure. It's not a live stream like Joe Rogan. No, that's good can edit the shit out of this no we can be live let's be live can be live yeah no editing um no nets no nets no safety nets so what what do you normally like to talk about on the show i've not seen the show yet yeah there's not been any published episodes yet okay i'm gonna die so it's okay that i don't go to the grave with an archive of interviews well i hear for for podcasting they recommend that you actually make like seven shows and then release them that way you if you miss a week you have a buffer yeah, and that that way you you don't like beat yourself up too bad for because like consistency is really important. I've heard that you should release three shows at the beginning. Yeah, and then uh, so yeah, I've been recording episodes so that I'll be able to release three and then release one a week, even if I missed a week or something. Right. Yeah, you always want a buffer because the I, just consistency is super critical because once you have like some fans, they want to get in the habit of listening to it. Um, I did a podcast project. I'm still working on it called cast.market and we uh, have a search engine for all the shows and we track their uh, popularity. So um, as soon as you launch, we'll index your show and you'll be able to track if you're popular in Vietnam or in Columbus or be able to track your uh, sort of analytics. Is this like part of, is this a standalone website or yeah, an app? Or? You can just go to cast.market and you can see all the shows and see like the frequency at which they release their shows and um, where where in the world there people are listening. Turns out some of the most popular shows are language learning because it's a completely free way to learn English. And like there are billions of people all over the world that want to learn English and this is the cheapest way to do it. We are uh, sitting in a in a bar, but it's also a co-working space. Right. That's true. Yeah. So it's um it's three things, it's a bar and it's a pierogi restaurant and it's a co working space. So all three things, and um it's here in Columbus in the old Max and Irma's um in German Village, and that's where I'm working these days. Before moving back to Columbus, you lived in San Francisco for like 15 years. Yeah. Or? Yeah. I lived there for a long time. I first moved out to Northern California um, for a few years to work on a new company. And then I moved down into San Francisco to do all sorts of stuff. Let's quickly let people know like some of the apps that you've released in the past. Right. So we, when the app store launched, we released an app called Recorder, which ended up being a either top one or two uh, selling app. We were one of the first at the time. At the launch of the App Store, the the uh, prices were five and ten dollars, and we were like the first ones to realize that um, it, you really wanted to price things at like a dollar because popularity was more important than um, uh, 
their, your price really because popularity drove more and more downloads because of the way the charts worked. Um, so we were part of that whole thing and saw that unroll and saw how Apple did it and um, learned a lot from that and went on to make uh, music creation products. And so we made, um, uh, we did the rebirth port. So we ported Propeller Heads Rebirth to the iPhone and the iPad later on. Um, the iPad version is beautiful. I think it's really great. The iPhone version is pretty good. Uh, but at the time, you know, we didn't know whether the iPhone had enough power to do Rebirth. We suspected it did. But we didn't know until I was able to play the demo song out of a iPhone 1. And it was amazing to hear that old cheesy tune come out of come out of the iPhone. Um, and we knew at that point that it was possible. So I worked for about two months without even knowing if, if it would be possible. And there was no way to know. Like, I couldn't... There was no way to know what, because the the iPhone you you never really knew how much power you had. You never really knew how much memory you had because Apple kind of locked that stuff away from you. And so, and then there wasn't like I, I, if I spent the time benchmarking it like on the on a PC or something, it doesn't even really translate that well. So truthfully, I had to spend like two months porting it, and then. Uh, before I knew that it was even going to be possible. It was an archaeology project. It was super cool. Oh. And uh, for those who don't know what Reason, was that yeah, Reason? Uh, well, this is Rebirth. So Rebirth is uh, the, there's these four instruments and it's a 808, a 909, and a 303. Well, then actually Rebirth has two 303s. So those are the instruments for acid techno, which is a genre of music. And if you put those instruments together in any configuration, they always make acid techno. So, right. so Rebirth is awesome because like, you can sit down and anyone can literally turn the knobs and create something. And it's always going to be acid techno. It's always going to be dance music. And you can't not make dance music with it. It was wildly popular. It was like, it was like the equivalent of Doom for the music industry. You know, the, you know, Doom is this video game that like forever changed what our perceptions of video games can be and rebirth was the same way and just like doom and even minecraft had all these people who would mod it people would mod rebirth like crazy there are all these different skins and people would tweak the sounds and circuit bend it and all this stuff um so it's awesome to be a part of part of that and that's after that you guys did other you've done a lot of projects for existing synth brands yes as well as additional synths Actually, I want to take a step back quickly. What's one of the things I think is interesting about you is, as a as a child, your mom's a music teacher, mm -hmm. your dad's an electrical engineering teacher, right. professor. Right. So you have both a technical and a musical and artistic upbringing. Yeah. Right. That's and then, right. kind of those two things dovetailed together into what is maybe most of your career so far. Right. Which is like audio software. Yeah, that's right. Most of my time has spent has been spent making audio software. And the idea to me is that an instrument is the ultimate combination of art and technology. And the reason why I think that, you know, most people think of instruments as these sort of like old things, but a piano was once very high tech and a violin once was once high tech as well. And it, you know, it, it the, the, an instrument, it, requires a certain amount of science and a certain amount of art in order to have it all come together. You know, the visuals of an instrument matter, but they're not, they're not, it, you wouldn't want to sacrifice the performance for the, the visual characteristic, but they, but instruments are beautiful. So anyway, it's a, it's a combination of design, art, and technology, but also, they're also a com combination of 
of culture because an instrument won't uh, come into any kind of popularity until until people start using it to write music with it. And so it all has to kind of come together. You got to combine culture, art, science, technology. It's like the it's like the ultimate combination of all of these really challenging fields. So I've always been very fascinated in like what it takes to make them and what it what um and, and their impact on on you know art and and science. Let me help plug some of your some of right so projects for the last t- last 10 years. Yeah, so um I can talk I mean we, we did so we did the rebirth stuff with propeller heads and then we did IMPC with uh, Akai. And IMPC is a iPhone and iPad version of MPC. And MPC, just like the 303 and the 808 and the 909 made acid techno, the MPC made hip hop. Now, the creator of each of these instruments never knew that they would create musical genres with their instrument. They were always trying to create, just like sort of our modern, the modern technology movement has about doing things faster and easier. The, the 303 was originally made so that you wouldn't have to hire a bassist. You could play your guitar, and the 303 was a bass simulator. It didn't sound like a bass, especially if you put some filters on it. But um, and the and the you know 808 and 909 were meant so that you didn't have to hire a drummer. So these were not designed to make techno originally. No one knew that techno would come about because of these things. MPC likewise created hip hop, and uh, again, it was it was designed to be a drum machine. But because of the ability to sample phrases and music, the idea was you could go and sample any drums you wanted and then replay them. But that's not what, what hip-hop did. Hip-hop did use the drums, but then they also sampled phrases from classic music and weave them into their beats. And that created what, what we know of, of rap and hip-hop now. So the MPC was the beginning of that. So we brought the MPC to the iPhone and iPad. Previously, an MPC would cost you like a thousand dollars or something. It'd be an expensive instrument, but you know, our, our, you know, now you can have it in your pocket for like three dollars. And we thought that was pretty cool. Do you think that a company like Akai can, has any worries that their software application will cannibalize their hardware sales? I don't know. I mean, I think they probably just see the mobile stuff as uh, a way to get their legend and legacy out to as many people as possible. Um, so uh, there's no no one, I don't think any, you know, uh, the desktop hardware is going to be more powerful and have more uh, uh, sort of capabilities than the mobile products. So I, I don't think there's any worry about that. There's also a certain tactile feel to the hardware sense that you might not get on an iPad screen? Oh, uh, yeah. I mean, you can add controllers. Uh, yeah. I mean, Akai's a partner of ours. They're, they're, they've, been, they've been great. And it's been, I think we have a really good thing going. I mean, we're, we're sort of the mass market, super accessible mobile version of their studio gear. Before we move past music uh, tools completely, um, you guys have built a lot of in-house Prod products yeah. as well, right? So we've also we ported uh, the Arturia has a very nice mini Moog emulator for the for software for PCs, and so we've got a mobile version of that, which is really nice. We have a audio loops and samples marketplace and interchange system called Audio Copy. It's also an editor. It's free. It's awesome. 
Um, we have a system called Tabletop, which is a pile of instruments that you can wire up and make music with. Um, essentially one-stop shop for all your music needs. We've got all the different tools, samplers, synthesizers, drum machines, um, sequencers. What do you think, if, if an artist was interested to make music using iPads, would they be better off using an all-in-one system like Tabletop or having maybe several iPads and using stand more standalone things? I think it all depends. I mean, you know, artists uh, each find their own favorite instruments is what I find. Like if you're a guitarist, you find your favorite guitar or it finds you and that's going to be your instrument that you're going to, you know, be inspired by and you're going to learn to play. Uh, there, you, you, you might have a couple of guitars, but the point is that every creative musician finds their own thing. And we see tons and tons of uh, sort of the younger generation just completely making tracks on their iPhones because that's what they have. They don't, you know, it's, they don't, they don't want to go out and buy a notebook just so they can do music. So they have a phone, so they download music apps and write beats and rap and create videos and all sorts of stuff. I think that's, yeah, it's what the younger generation is definitely doing. I remember talking to uh, Zach, your one of your partners in yeah. in the Retronyms, yeah, years ago, yeah. Um, and I was I was asking about, hey, are you going to ever bring these things to Android? Right. And at the time, Android certainly wasn't up to the task in terms of audio latency and stuff. Right. Has that changed? Not really. Um, there's a lot of things about Android that make it difficult. There's technical things, which could be overcome. But then there's business model things. So the the music creation fans are on iPhones. So that's one thing. So the density is higher. Also, they're more likely to pay for things. And our business model is sell software. We're not, you know, we don't have an advertising-based business. Got to have some revenue stream. So we sell the software and Android is less likely to do that. I think that the business model is more serious than the technical problems. If someone came up with a business model that involved music creation that um, didn't require that you sold the apps, then um, you would want to have it on both Android and iOS. So if you came up with like an Instagram, but for music, you'd, you'd do it on both. But if you're going to make apps and sell them, you can avoid a bunch of technical headaches and a bunch of design limitations that Android provides in the audio space and uh, just do iOS. And that's what we've been doing. Now, we 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 port to uh, Android uh, uh, now and then, but so far we've been trying to focus on iOS. And then what is the wedge? So... Um, always wanted to build a hardware project and also recognize some musical limitations of the iPad. And uh, those limitations were related to how you connect hardware devices. So the way you would connect hardware, musical hardware to iPads was through an adapter that uh, was also your charge port. So you know, it's it, there's these little USB adapters for for iPads, and you can connect a MIDI device to those, but you can't charge while you're doing that. And so, we 
uh, developed a Bluetooth uh, device. And right around the same time, a new MIDI standard came out that supported the, this Bluetooth link, which meant that it had to be really low latency and it had to be acceptable for musicians. So uh, we said, hey, let's, let's make a USB adapter for Bluetooth so that people can connect their musical instruments to their iPad or musical control surfaces to their iPad. And, um, but uh, let's not stop there. Let's uh, do some crazy bright lights and a, sort of a light show so that, uh, you know, if you're on stage or if you're aspiring to be on stage or if you just like the idea of combining crazy lights with, uh, it has like 48 super bright full color LEDs and you can control them from your, your uh, uh, phone or your iPad and they, they synchronize with the music. And so, so you can sort of like do a, do a stage performance or even on YouTube, it looks cooler than just like plunking away on your iPad. So it's sort of this like combo device that we made. Um, and it's a silicon surface, so it won't slip if you put your, your, your iPad on it. Um, and we did a Kickstarter and then sold a bunch, made a bunch. And, um, some of the components that we used to build it are now, uh, unavailable. So we have to kind of redesign it in order to build it again. And maybe we will, maybe we won't. It just hasn't been decided yet. Is there any inventory left? There may be, but we're, I think it's basically sold out. We made two runs and we only expected to sell the first one, but we ended up selling through both, which is pretty cool. I, I, I actually, uh, now that we're talking about it, like I'm getting excited about like maybe redesigning it, but, um, uh, yeah, it was really stressful. <laughs> so yeah. I, I don't know. If you did a new one, would you make, uh, an iPad pro sized one also? Maybe. I mean, this one worked fairly well for iPad Pro. It wasn't like the iPad Pro would would fall off, fall off if you're tapping the iPad Pro. It worked pretty well. Um, so, yeah, maybe make it a little bigger. I, I think one thing that you learn about um, hardware is that the price is often dictated by the size. So bigger objects are more expensive for everybody, and they're more and they're heavier which also means they're more expensive. So the price of something is related to its size and its weight. Um, Especially when you're talking about materials, the cost of material and also the cost of shipping. Yeah. I mean, one of the things I try to think about is like, what can you stuff a lot of really amazing software into that's also very small? And that that's like a, a, a an idea because you can create a lot of value that way by putting a whole bunch of amazing software in something small. Because small is inexpensive, and um, that's kind of what an iPhone is. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, it's true. I mean, uh, the iPhone is probably less expensive to manufacture than any notebook computer, like any notebook computer, uh, even cheap ones, because it's so small, and they've got such high volumes. Right. Yeah. Yeah, it's not technology is not what's expensive. It's the size. Size is what I see as a constraining, a constraining aspect. You have to pay more. You have to pay a premium for the latest greatest, but it isn't inherently, like over, especially over time when it isn't the latest, it isn't inherently more expensive. You could have like a cinder block, and that would be big and heavy and cheap and expensive. And if you want to ship it across the country, I well, mean, you know, yeah, the shipping for it would be expensive. Yeah. 
But uh, the material cost wouldn't necessarily be expensive. You're right. The material cost isn't anything. And there's no software in it or anything. And there's a whole industry to ship those things around. But yeah. <laughs> they don't only ship one at a time. That's the thing. You right. ship a whole truck bed of cinder blocks or right. something. Right. The rule of big and heavy is what creates the cost of something is just an estimate. It's not it's not completely true. Oh. It's just but it's it's something to think about when designing products. Because there's a lot of there's a lot of truth to it. But sometimes the converse is true too, because if you look at what you can accomplish in a desktop in terms of price per performance versus a laptop, which has much greater thermal constraints. Right. You know, right. You're sometimes paying a premium for having power in a small package. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. That's true too. Medium. Yeah. Like Goldilocks. Yes. Like Goldilocks yeah. zone of medium size technology at medium power. Yeah, there you go. That's probably the probably the smart way. Medium medium amount of powerful apps. Yeah, exactly. We should talk about another favorite subject of mine, which is uh, uh where to live and work. Sure. And uh the so Are you a Columbus native? Yes. Like, so yeah. grew up in Columbus, Ohio. Right. Moved out to San Francisco as right. part of the gold rush. I wouldn't say that. I, I think that I think that I always was uh, fascinated by San Francisco and the Bay and all that. But I was recently thinking back to like when I moved out there, and I originally moved out to the country in California, and I didn't like. Uh, uh, I wasn't trying to get to Silicon Valley. I was just trying to work on some cool things. And I'm, I didn't move to the city because I wanted to. I, I moved there because of some other factors. It wasn't like a dream of mine. Um, but when I was there, I did, uh, I did love it. And I, like, I lived there while, you know, before Uber and before um, uh, Salesforce and all that stuff was just first few lines of software. When I was there, not at all. Uh, I'm kind of curious. You've lived in a few places. Uh, originally from Columbus, Ohio, moved to Northern California including the countryside and San Francisco. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And now you're, after many years there, you're fine, you've relocated back to Columbus, Ohio. Right. So, like, what do you like about living and working in both these places? And right. what do you dislike about both of the places? Right. Yeah. So, I think that it's difficult to do creative work in, uh, in certain cities. And it's because of the, um, there, there's sort of like an aggressive, an, an aggressive, uh, attitude in a lot of cities and it's hard to be creative in that. It's not, it's not even just economics either. It's just everyone around you is very aggressively pursuing something and it makes it difficult to actually sit and think and work creatively. And that's why there aren't that many like rock bands in San Francisco or New York anymore. It's why it's why the sort of creative side of things is happening elsewhere. And I think that that is a that's the main thing that I don't like about living in a city is that you end up with a lack of uh, variety or diversity of the types of people that live there. Do you think when you first moved to San Francisco, there was more creative stuff happening. Yeah. So San Francisco used to be like an ink. Well, look, San Francisco is always changing and that's a good thing. It's not a bad thing. And it's an amazing place. I love it. But when I moved there, 
it wasn't a place for large companies. It was a place for small companies and startups and a lot of creativity, a lot of wild ideas. And then if you had some success, you would often move down south. And then now those companies now blew up down south and they moved up. They're moving up to the city. And so now there's like, you know, Salesforce and Uber and stuff like right in San Francisco. And and it's fine. It's just that again, it drives out some of the uh some of the creativity in some ways. Or some of the or some of the pursuits that aren't entirely financial. Like if your pursuit is like, I want to see if I can build uh something that really appeals to to me or some idea that I have, um, and isn't all like driven by some market thing. It's difficult to build that kind of stuff in a city these days. People don't understand it as well. <laughs> and then is Columbus more yeah, suited for that then? I think so. I it, it's 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 um it can be. I mean, I think that you know, I've been working really hard on trying to create really big ideas here in Columbus. Like ethics, which is this blockchain project I'm working on, is a very big idea around decentralized trade. And it's something that I think is like a really, really huge idea and it's really aggressive. But that isn't always the best thing to be working on. You know, sometimes sometimes there are other pursuits. And it's good to have lots of people around you that are pursuing lots of things. And Columbus has a big variety. I mean, I've got some friends here that are very involved in creating amazing music and art scenes and spaces and lifestyles that that make this place awesome. In a couple words, what's your favorite and least favorite part of San Francisco <laughs> and of Columbus? Uh, uh, that's 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 tough. Uh, I think my favorite thing about San Francisco is it's super beautiful and it's. It's got, you know, mountains and the ocean and uh, all the activities that come with that. You know, the skiing, the sailing, the surfing, the hiking is just out of this world. Amazing. Um, and then the worst thing is it's a super grind and there's a tremendous amount of traffic. So this like, and the, and the traffic's bad because it's hard to get to those mountains and oceans and you have to, you have to deal with it. Now you can schedule and deal with it, but it's, it's a lot. Um, Columbus, the best thing about it is that it's super convenient and super low, uh, low key. There's a huge variety in the kinds of things you can do, but, um, and there's no, there's no nonsense, you know, like you never, you're never in a two hour traffic, traffic jam, but, um, it doesn't have mountains and oceans and, and, uh, 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 you know, that kind of thing in your, in the stairwell of your. Yes. Co-working space. There's a yeah. it looks quite vintage poster. Yes, that says Ohio skiing. Yeah, it says ski Ohio, ski Ohio, and then it's got a man like tucked in a racing tuck, but he's just on a flat cornfield. He's on a cornfield. Yeah, um, that's right. <laughs> that, that's it's it's you know it's muddy riverbanks and uh, flat. Everything's flat. Sticks, trees. You know, terrible uh, weather um, in comparison to, to other places, um, but. A lot of a lot of really awesome things in terms of what people do here. You know, you have to kind of make it great, and that's that's like it's not just great because we have an ocean or a mountain. It's great because there are people doing all sorts of really cool things here. When we were in high school, uh, it Columbus felt quite vibrant in terms of some of the art and yeah, rave rave scenes. Yes, completely. And I've always, I think, I've even had conversations with you about this in the past. Like part of the reason why it seemed so vibrant at the time is because there wasn't really anything to do. Yeah. So, like, 
people sitting around saying this kind of sucks what can we do to make it better yeah. and then trying to make something and making yeah. a scene yeah but a lot of those people us included yeah left yeah you know went to chicago san francisco los yeah. angeles new york mm-hmm. after they finished high school or finished university mm-hmm. to try to chase the thing that they had already made you know they yeah i mean you never yeah i never found it uh anywhere else and it may have been there but i you know I didn't find quite what we had here in terms of the the vibrancy or the, the there's stuff. I mean, there's stuff elsewhere. It's different, so maybe that's part of it. But yeah, I, I think it's a good point. Do you do you have um, any time these days for writing music? Uh, I think about. I mean, one of the things that happened to me is that like once I started creating all the music software I that I did, I, I like didn't want to sit in front of someone else's music software. And I didn't want to sit in front of my own because that felt too much like work. I needed a break from what I was doing for the last eight hours. So it meant that I couldn't really write music. Now, I would pick up an acoustic guitar and fiddle with that and write some songs and play some other people's songs. And that was fun. But I haven't written music in a long time. I might someday, but not So right. how do you spend your off hours? Um, I, You know, like going for a walk or a hike, cooking, um, you know, uh it's different every day. I've got a bunch of family here, so I'll see the family, you know, um, you know, uh, hanging out with my wife, that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Simple stuff. You think your brother will stay in San Francisco or he'll, he'll come yeah. back to here? I think, I think, I mean, his wife is, is very involved in the design community. She runs a, uh, design, um, organization. Uh, and it's awesome. She does a really great job and it's very San Francisco based. So I think that that'll keep them in the city. What do you find exciting these days? Um, I think that the um, I I think I still you know personally like what I what I'm interested in is I'm I'm still interested in building things, and uh, the sort of creative process and like getting building products and shipping uh, different tools and giving people things that allow them to do things they couldn't have done before. That that to me is really exciting. Like going from you know, yeah. I mean, that that's the kind of thing I think a lot about. Um, that's what I work on, you know, every day. So last time I was in Columbus a year ago, your main thing was ethex, E T H E X, ethics, ethics. Yeah, but E T H E X. Yeah, yeah. This is still my main thing. Um, like I'm still focused on this uh, every day. Over the last month, I spent a lot of time uh, looking at like uh, other types of work and other types of possibilities, but it's still, ethics is still my main focus. How would you describe ethics? Ethics is a way for any two people to swap digital assets without any intermediaries. And um, it's built, built upon uh, Ethereum, smart contracts. And, but essentially the company is interested in decentralized trade because if you think that, um eventually worldwide trade needs to be more decentralized it will improve the economy for the world and the reason is that there's friction every time you move an asset through a country into another country it's like why do we have like we should have companies that are more global and rather than companies that are uh 
uh, sort of localized to different jurisdictions. And it's the internet age, right? That means that companies, internet companies should be, should, should have more of a, of a global stance than a, a local stance. And so decentralized trade helps to bring that about. Do you think that, and currently with companies, if you want a company, you have to establish it somewhere, right? You have to register it as a company yeah. in some country. Yes. And then you have multinationals, which they probably have their um, nominal headquarters in a tax haven, and then they have branch offices in many countries. And we have this kind of, if you listen to politics on either side of the aisle, right. you, you end up having topics about like companies not necessarily paying their fair share of taxes in the first place, but also like regulations. Um, if you want to do uh, manufacturing within this country, you have to follow these environmental standards, for instance. Right. Well, so given, given kind of the, the idea here of like what a company is, you know, I, I think that um, right now in the world, you know, if, let's get sci-fi, right? In the world we live in, yeah. a company is a, um, a structure that's a piece of a nation. So the nation provides a structure for people to work together in the form of either a corporation or an LLC or a, or a 501c3 nonprofit or whatever. Um, political this is action. Kind of old world. This is what well, this is what we're we're at now. Right. Yeah, this is how it's set up now. But um, I look at projects like the thing that I you know think about is like look at projects like Linux. There wasn't really a company Linux. You know, it was it was a movement of people, and it achieved tremendous things um, during its day, and still powers the world around us. It's what your iPhone's made of. It's what Google is made of. It's the sort of premise to all the tech companies, Amazon. And so, but Linux wasn't a company. And so how did it exist and how did it have so much influence? And the reason why is because it was a set of shared ideals and incentives. And I think that's a more powerful thing than any company. And so the question is, how do you, how, how do you, um, establish and track the thing that Linux never solved was like, how do you really establish and track how much people have contributed or how much value people have contributed to a system and a system of values and, and ideas? How do you, how do you track people's contributions to that? And I don't think we know yet, but I believe we'll find it one day and you're going to get much more powerful systems. And they may not be called corporations anymore, but they'll essentially be these global systems of incentives and, and participation, and they'll have more impact than a company ever has, just like Linux. Do you think they will be governed by local laws and regulations, or they somehow transcend that? Yes. So, so yes and no. In other words, every, you know, company, uh, the, the nation, nation's still, uh, even in the far future, I think, still super relevant. It's always going to happen. But, um, you know, Again, you're going to see systems emerge that are effectively distributed and unstoppable, kind of like Linux was, or kind of like Bitcoin is. That that are these global systems that that are just these super powerful and influential. 
things. And you're going to see more and more things like that. I mean, imagine if Linux, to, to get an idea of like what I'm talking about, like imagine if when Linux was coming about, it also had a concept of blockchain built into it. That would have been a very, very, very powerful thing, you know, because now you're talking about uh, tracking how many bytes are moving through the system and who moved those bytes and what software moved those bytes and who wrote certain critical algorithms and systems and managed projects. And like, if all of that can be economically tracked uh, and accounted for. So that the people that contributed it could be compensated could for their be, or, effort? Or, or even or? just simply recognized in some way on some kind of a leaderboard or something. That might be all it takes. And uh, who knows, though? I mean, I don't know the details of what this kind of thing will look like, but just there'll be systems like Linux, um, again, and they'll be very powerful and very influential, sort of global technical movements that revolutionize uh how we interact with each other or how we get our Uber or everything. And they're on the horizon and it's just a matter of putting the pieces together. Has Blender been on your radar recently at all? Blender, the, the 3d tool. Yeah. Yeah. I, I mean, I, I was playing with that just the other day. It's funny you asked, but it's, in, it's interesting because okay. for many years, yes. If you're like, well, I don't want to use photo. I don't want to pay for Photoshop. What are my alternatives? People would say GIMP. And then you would try to use GIMP or I don't want to use 3ds Max, but what are my alternatives? People would say Blender and you try to use Blender. And you're like, it's just not really up to snuff. Right, right. The, the interface is weird and right. it doesn't work quite the way I was expecting it should. And um, it seems from what, like, I still haven't dove into it, yeah. but it seems from a distance that with each version, at least of Blender, especially now they've got this 2.8 that's coming out. Now it's like kind of in a pre-release that they've solved most of that. Well, it's amazing. I mean, I was using it the other day and like, you know, I'm not a professional, so we'd have to ask the professionals, but I'm looking at this thing and I'm like, it's amazing. It's a huge pile of software that was written without, you know, uh, without a, a, some kind of a corporate structure or whatever. It's amazing. I mean, they have a foundation, yeah, but yeah. I don't know. You know, I don't know. It's still amazing. I mean, you know, it's open source and it isn't clear as a user of it. It's not clear what the business model is. But. I have some uh, friends in Vietnam that have a visual effects studio and they yeah. actually work on Hollywood films yeah. from time to time. And uh, I just kind of saw, again, from like an arm. I haven't. Do they seen, use it there? I haven't seen them say a post that says, we use. Like, this is why right. we use Blender. Right. I mean, it hasn't been explicit like that. But sometimes right. when you see people posting over time, you yeah. start to intuit. Yeah. Like, oh, I'm pretty sure that they're using Blender a lot. Right. Um, either because the price of the license at $0 yeah. is attractive or to them. Or it's really good. Or because, like, it's actually meeting their needs on yeah. a professional level. And it seems to be the case. Yeah. Yeah. As I said, I, you know, I'm not a... I'm not uh, equipped to even have this discussion, but I, I did use it the other day and I was all like, this thing's looking really legit. And, um, you know, I think it's great. I mean, I love it. I love that. More soft, more open source is, is awesome for everybody. Can't deny it. It's funny that you say you're not equipped to, I mean, I believe you, you're not equipped to make that uh, judgment. I can't call. review. I can't review just because I haven't used like any of the professional tools in 10 years. But yes, like 
you were the first person to introduce yeah. me to True Space yeah, yeah. and to 3DS Max yeah, yeah, yeah. while we were still in high school. Yeah, those so. awesome tools. I mean, I as I said, I, Blender is better than those tools, but that was 20 years ago. Right. I haven't, haven't used it since. Again, I haven't really used any of those professionally in, in a while now myself, <laughs> but... Uh, from what I can tell, those tools, along with Adobe's tools, so right. Autodesk's tools and Adobe's tools right. have suffered from consolidation, mm. where in the case of Adobe, like they bought Macromedia. Mm -hmm. So now we don't have competition, competition. between freehand right. and Illustrator. Right. And we don't have really competition between Max and Maya. You know, in that competition, one of the things the competition would do is one of the competitors would say, here's a new creative cool idea. And they put it in their product. And it may work. It may not. People might like it. They might not. But if they did like it, the competitor had to also build it. Meanwhile, they're both doing that. They're both innovating. But you kind of stop innovating once you have a monopoly. In fact, the major thing that Adobe did in the last few years was all they did was change their business model. The truth is that it's a better product with the business model they have now. I like the subscription that they're doing. I think it's a really good idea. But when I think about the innovation that Adobe has done in the last couple of years, I think about that's their biggest innovation. Even though in the graphics space, like from the research perspective, there's just a tremendous amount of stuff happening with like machine learning and like, like deep learning and all this just amazing, phenomenal things. Um, and I don't see any of those in Adobe products, really. There's some stuff. A but, little bit. A little bit. But but if it's not as much as that. We had a, like, a, what's the word? It's a, a cornic, I guess the best, I use the word cornucopia of, mm -hmm. of amazing advances in graphics over the last three years. But you, again, when I think about Adobe, I think, oh, they changed the subscription model. I don't see them, like, incorporating all this, like, crazy uh, machine learning. They changed it. They changed it. Subscription model a few years ago, and then more recently they've increased the price of the subscription. Okay, sounds about right. <laughs> <laughs> and um, uh, I've been looking for alternatives. Okay, myself. Inkscape, um, you know, GIMP. There's a this one called Affinity Designer and Affinity. Oh, it's uh, a matter of time before there's going to be an incredible photo editor. There's probably there's a there's a guy talking about it right now. So for the web. So you just use your browser. And it's a matter of time before that takes over, in my opinion. Mm. Like, you know, Google will release one, like a, a really nice photo editor built into Google Docs, and it'll just be incredible. Okay, here's kind of a, here's a topic that maybe, maybe you have some insight on. I've been researching new computers yes. so that I could edit this uh, podcast. Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, you have this dynamic where because I'm doing a lot of traveling, ideally the computer I get is as small as possible. Right. For me, actually, the ideal would be a 13-inch. Okay. It's big enough that your hand they have kind of a decent keyboard, but still as small as possible. Right. Right. But at that size, you don't get a lot of power. Right. Compared to 17 inches. Right. Right. And some people are like, how about you uh, do your editing on the cloud? Why don't right. you use cloud horsepower? Right. And then I'm like, but what about latency? Right. And they're like, but there's a streaming game, something or other, yeah. you know, on live or, you know, in the mm -hmm. past and everybody poo-pooed it and then it went away. So, yeah. Uh, 
I don't. I didn't. I didn't actually just give you a question there. I just kind yeah, of no, ram- so, rambled about. So, so the way to think about this one is to sort of say, you know, what's the most, what's the most efficient way to deliver uh, compute, um, to a, a person, right? And if you're doing using Photoshop, if you're editing videos, if you're playing video games, latency is part of the subject. But like, what's the most efficient way? Well, when you buy a computer, you're only using it however many hours during the day. And the rest of the time, you're not using it. Meanwhile, the CPU is spiking. So occasionally you need the CPU, but a lot of times you don't. Like you've got all these cores, right? Not, they're not engaged all the time. So it definitely seems to me that the most efficient way to access compute for a person is to rent it. And the nice thing about that is that you could rent a thousand cores just decide, hey, I need a thousand cores to render this thing because I want it done now. I don't want to even wait 30 seconds. I want it done in one second. And the truth is that that's not more expensive because if you need 30 seconds of processing done, you need 30 seconds of processing. It doesn't matter whether you do it across a thousand CPUs or one. So that means that the nice thing about the cloud is that you get more compute when you need it and less compute when you don't. And it's going to be cheaper because at night when you're not using it, you're not paying for it. Whereas you're like your current machine, you are because you own it. So the cloud is more efficient from a compute standpoint. And then from a delivery and latency standpoint, well, the latency is like on a nice connection is like 30, 40 milliseconds, 20 milliseconds, maybe. And that's pretty good. Uh, Each frame at 30 frames a second is like, what is that? 30 milliseconds. So you're actually able to get like really good latency. Now, in the case of video games, one of the challenges there is that it's really difficult to send video feeds, live video feeds of a video game because you can't do inter-frame compression. So you can't do keyframes, you can't do any of that because you never know what the next frame is going to have on it. So if you're sending the frame, you have to send each frame compressed as like a JPEG. Um, and you can't do video compression. So, but if you have a fast enough compression, uh, you have a fast enough connection, you could do it. And it would, it could be, it could be amazing if you designed a video game to access like multi GPU CPUs and you didn't have to design that game. So it would run on everybody's different configuration. You, you could just spend time being like, this is the machine we have, kind of like consoles, but bigger. And then you stream it all over the net and you're just renting the machine while you're using it. That could be, that could be amazing. But when you look at, when people are choosing their computer monitor, yeah. they're like, dude, that's got more than three, three milliseconds yeah. of latency. So yeah, that's true. Yeah. So that, refresh that, rate. So for, for competitive games, I think that's true. It's always going to be a thing. But someone could, someone could build like a new World of Warcraft that worked this way, that it wasn't all about uh, reaction time, but it was a little bit more about, uh, something else. Like in other words, if you design a game around this idea that you're going to have uh, 30 milliseconds of latency, and you have these specialized machines, and you're going to stream the content over that way, then um, you could do some amazing things. I think. Now, at the same time, I like having a machine locally, um, and these tools that we're talking about don't exist yet. So in the current world, everything still is better if, from a media editing and media production and like. Uh, gaming point of view, it's still better to have everything locally. And might, might, maybe always it will. Here's a... Uh, oh, and by the way, you talk about that latency on video games. You still have that latency when you're in a competitive game. 
you still have all the control latency. You know, it still has to go up to a server and go out to everyone else. The difference is you're just sending more data. More data doesn't increase the latency. The, the size of the data has no effect on latency. What, what does is buffering. And the reason why you do buffering is because you have different amounts of data you can send in every moment. It's sort of spiky due to like other people on the network and so on and so forth. But as the pipes get bigger, your latency is going to remain, you know, that 20, 30 milliseconds bounded by light, you know, the speed of light, basically. And that'll always be there. But the control, in other words, the, the, uh, the future to me is absolutely rendering on the cloud. It doesn't, it doesn't inherently increase latency. Okay, here's a potential optimal workflow. Yeah. Edit locally using proxy media. Using what? Proxy media. So like okay. low resolution okay. versions of my footage. Yeah. Right? Let's say like standard TV resolution. Yeah. In the background, uploading 4K footage to the servers. When I finish my edit send my edit decisions to the server and have it render the high quality footage with the edits. Sure. Right? Yeah. Completely. Or or you know that's just that's just how you design the software. In other words, the, again the the the, ch the cheapest place to have the compute and the rendering is in the cloud where other people can use it when you're not. That's the that's always going to be the most efficient place. And to where it, it can be upgraded without you having to right care about upgrading it. Right. But that doesn't mean that you're not going to run any client software. So you're going to run some client software and then you're going to have Again, in the future, you're gonna have a lot of the compute on the cloud, and then and then the, like some things that need to be less than thirty milliseconds. Anything that needs to be less than thirty milliseconds, you'll do on your machine. Um, so, a couple of things that I believe will never fully be solved uh, because of this latency inherent fundamental latency problem is music. So, if you're playing in a band, you can't. The latency is in it. You can't jam online. You, I don't think you can jam online. People have tried several times, never worked. There are things you can do. You can do um, GitHub style session creation where you write your baseline, I hear it, or you play a baseline, I hear it, and then I add my part on top of that, and then you hear that. And we've built those kinds of systems before. But the, and that's fun. That's a cool thing to do. But it's not the same as playing in a band. Playing in a band is awesome. It's like you, you're all together. You're aware of each other. You you kind of know what's happening, and you're you're. it's meditative, and it's an amazing experience. You can't do it online because of the latency. I mean, the, you can sometimes barely have a conversation on Skype because of right latencies. Right, right. Well, and the other the other problem with uh, Skype, I think, is the gaze effect. So the problem is that like you're looking at a screen, and inevitably there's a video of you on there somewhere. Uh -huh. You tend to look at that because people. Did you? See, I saw two weeks ago. I saw some news stories about, or maybe it was Intel doing stuff to like basically they just draw your pupils looking at the person. Yes. I always thought this would be an awesome project because the gaze problem is like one of the three things left that make video conferencing hard. I mean, it's one of those uncanny valley problems where where if you're just talking to a friend or whatever in a bar, you can do that and that's great. But as soon as you try to virtualize it, you add latency, you add the gaze problem, and you add like the other things that come up. And um, then you're in this uncanny valley where it's uncomfortable and weird. Yeah. No one's looking at each other is the thing. I I was for the long I mean I've always been bothered by the fact that even if I'm looking at my uh conversational partner's eyes yeah 
it looks like I'm not because that's right. not where the camera's located. Right, this is the gaze problem. Right, yeah. And I was always thinking, well, maybe you could have a dead pixel in the middle of the screen, yeah. like at about where the eye level would be on most people, yeah. And and put a camera in there. Or the other idea is put a light sensor in every LED element. You have a giant image sensor. Oh well, yeah. So so the and the only trick there there's is no that, lens to focus it. Though. You don't need one if you have an array that big, I believe. You think? I don't think so. I don't know how that works, yeah. but. Yeah, I don't know. I, it seems like you might. I mean, it. look, you're taking a lot of you're taking in a lot of data. You should be able to reconstruct an image. <laughs> so, this is something that's interesting. That's going to become more and more prevalent and interesting with um, like photo cameras and yeah. and also cell phone cameras. You have what they call computational photography. Okay. Yeah. So you have things where like traditionally, if you want to have create a nice blurry background in a, in a photograph you got to have a bigger sensor you have to have a lens with a large aperture and that's mm -hmm. how you create this blurry background right but now you can just you can you can uh even skype now has this blur background like right one button click thing and it's not right. as good but it's only going to get better right? right if you can do if you can do face and head detection uh, based upon the features of your face. And we've been working on that forever and we're getting pretty good at it. Very good at it. If you can do that, um, then you can blur the background. This camera has eye detect auto, eye, right. eye detect focus where it right. tracks your eyeball. And then when you take the picture, it like takes a picture. Right. Yeah. Focuses I mean, on your eyeball. Cameras will wait until everyone's smiling and have their eyes open before taking a this photo. Has that. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. Or it's, I mean, it's got, uh, I don't have that. It's got this like selfie mode where when you smile, it takes a picture. Yeah. Right. So this kind of computational stuff. Uh, I don't know where I was going with that. Oh, it's just um, the, you know, you talk about computational photography where you're simulating all these like effects of what a lens would do, and yeah, it's completely true. All right, yeah. So like in video conferencing, there's no reason why. In fact, they should they should have done it a while. Solve the gaze problem. You know? <laughs> yeah. It's so subtle that like nobody really wants to like invest in it. I think, but it's it's in the uncanny valley then, and if people aren't looking at each other, they don't have a good conversation. But if you've anyway. ever been in a long distance relationship, yeah. And you're doing a lot of video conferencing. Your partner can be like, "What are you? What are you working on? What are you doing?" You know? Exactly. And you're like, "I'm looking at you." Shit. <laughs> you know, it just yeah. doesn't look like it. Yeah. Yeah. What, yeah what that, be, that, what, that's one of the that's one of the problems with video conferencing. The first one is the gaze problem. It's not the biggest one, maybe. The next one is um, uh, just technology bullshit, like glitches and like things not working, and like the connection going down or whatever, which still happens even on like cell phone calls or telephone calls. Um, and then the idea that you're not actually in the same space. So you're, you're in a smaller space. So the idea is like, if you're in a room, that's the main space. Um, if you're in VR, that's the main space. I find that like your brain is only able to be in one space at a time, but in this video conferencing thing, you're both in this little box, even though you're also in this bigger room. So it's this problem of like, you're not, in it entirely and when you are you feel like confined in a way that it's it's, it's sort of traditional this, phone it's this crappy call, virtual box that you're in the traditional phone call creates a much more uh engaging virtual reality than yeah than current video conferencing uh, yeah I, I, yeah yeah something about something about that yeah there's something there for sure um i've had definitely immersive phone call experiences but i've never had an immersive Video conference. No, it's always frustrating. Yeah, I always mean, oftentimes frustrating. frustrating. Yes. And no one likes them. No one truly likes them. No one's like, oh, I'll call my friend on the video phone. 
they're like, oh, I'll call my friend on the telephone and have a conversation. That's that's fun. But the video calls are not. They're it's, not immersive in some ways. It's not a box you want to be in. You don't want to be in that box. It's something like that. Furthermore, if you if you have like a uh, streamer yeah. setup yeah. where you're using a proper camera yeah, 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 yeah. and a proper microphone yeah. and proper lighting, yeah. you can make pre-compression a right. really compelling uh, image. Right. But uh, but most people just use their built-in microphone and, and camera of their laptop or whatever. Yeah. They're not normally very high quality. You know, the, the Kinect had a video conference mode, had Skype. And and it was great. Uh, Xbox One Connect. Because I could sit on the couch with my wife or whatever, and the camera would have this intelligent algorithm to pan and zoom kind of as it was going. And that way, you'd feel like you were in, in the space together. Because I'd see the people I'm talking to, they'd see us, and they'd see that we weren't engaged in any other activities. Uh-huh. And we didn't have a gaze problem either. But that's a group conference call instead of like a one-on-one conference call, Yeah, right? yeah but, but because it wasn't a notebook also or a phone, the camera was far enough away that it, the gaze problem didn't happen. Uh-huh. And you could look at the person and it looked like they were looking at you. It was pretty damn close to being pretty excellent. I just on the Xbox. It wasn't like some fancy corporate uh, video conferencing system. Do you think that... Uh... When Skype is streaming video, yeah, yeah. is it doing video compression? Well, yeah, I mean the client. So, like, how is that different than uh, game streaming? Um, well, latency is important, right? You don't want a lot of latency in a conversation. So, just like a game, latency is important, right? But um, is Skype saying, "Well, because we need to have intra-frame compression, uh, okay, we're I going to, so. on purpose, have a one-second delay." They may, they may do a, they may do a. Yeah, a quarter second. Even a quarter second gives you like, uh, you know, six, eight frames to compress across. Um, you don't want that quarter second in a video game, though. Uh-huh. Like, that's going to be a lot. Do you know of any of the existing game streaming technologies? I don't know anything. I don't yeah. know anything about their, like, the things like they keep this, I guess, what, Google's now announced one? Yeah. And it's, as far as I know, like the fourth major one that has been announced right. way back. There was on live and uh, Gaikai, right, which was acquired by Sony, and I don't know if they ever did anything with it, right. And then maybe about a year ago, there's this thing called Shadowbox, yeah, which actually you can use to do this like a uh, remote. Um, you can just install video editing software on it if you want. Oh wow, cool. you know, so you same with that. Amazon, you can probably even pull that off. You can get, probably use a EC, get, yeah, EC two or whatever, yeah, yeah. Like a cloud, Amazon yeah. cloud, yeah. to do it as well. They have, but the thing is there. Their uh, GPU-powered mm-hmm. computes are um, pretty pricey. Yeah, they are. They're yeah. super pricey. So, <clears throat> like, something more game targeted towards gamers is, at this point, going to be more reasonably priced. Right. Because, uh, like, I guess if you're using 2080 Ti's on Amazon's cloud, you're probably doing ai or mich- yeah. some kind of research or yeah. uh finance stuff yeah. that you don't mind spending the extra money right but for just me wanting to edit my youtube videos it's right. kind of crazy yeah it is crazy um and then now there's the some kind of announcement about google doing it but yeah when on live first came out everyone was like oh it's not ever going to work because of the latency and they're like no it's going to work don't you believe uh, believe you me Come do this test where we're where we're next door to the server, <laughs> right? Know? Right, and we'll prove it to you. Right, right. But I mean, again, they're they're not wrong. Inherently, you can do it this way. Like from a like 
physics standpoint, you can do it this way. If your internet connection is fast enough, uh, and Could they use in quantum entanglement. No, because remember that the control part portion, uh, the you know, okay, imagine the video game is is just like two pixels on the screen, right? And or you're just two pixels moving around. Well, that would be easy to stream. Easy to stream as your enemies' controls are. Your enemies' controls are where they're moving their mouse and their keyboard controls and stuff like that. That all has to go up to a central server. That latency is what we're dealing. That's the most important latency, especially in a multiplayer game. Is like what's the latency of the players? Well, that has to go to the internet and go up to the server and all that. So why not move the entire video frame too? It's not. It's more data. Well, yeah, here's, it's here's, more data, but 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 like, who cares? In the so once you have enough space, once you have enough space, the game is indifferent to how much data you're moving. Well, here's here's one difference. The latency is indifferent when you're when you're rendering the game locally. When you make an input, your character responds instantly. Yeah, on your side. Yeah, on your you side to work to right to blow that away. So at least you have yeah. from the standpoint of like. You're right. My are my controls responsive? Yeah, you're right. Yes, they are. You're right. You're right. Now there might be things where the system realizes that your opponent and you are not where you said you were. Right. And then you could have like this jump situation right. where it tries to reposition you in the world where you should be right. game, at this point. We, I think we talked about this in Street Fighter. Uh, it's called uh, <laughs> game state replay, where the 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 players get a responsive view of the game. Meaning, I press punch, I immediately punch. Like within a frame, you know, that same for my opponent, the server knows who punched first. And so if it looks like I hit them, but they actually punch first, my character is the one that gets hit. It's and, called a rollback. Yeah, they roll back. Yeah. yeah. So, so that, that's something that games do, I'm sure to different uh, degrees and they're all working really hard to compensate for latency. So you might be right. You might be right that like, um, if the servers are rendering it, it'll never be as nice as if it's local. It's in terms point. of yeah, good player control, it, well, in terms of in terms of right. feel, it'll never feel as good. Yeah. So if you put all the frames through the internet, then you never get to do game state re rewind. And why did they do game state rewind? It's because the game wasn't as fun if you didn't do it. And right. but you, if the server's rendering the frames, you can't do it. And when you're talking about fighting games, there, I mean, any real competitive action game. Up until 10 years ago, people were saying, no, no, 30 frames per second is not enough. Right. It has to be 60 frames per second right. because that 1 60th of a second matters. Yeah. And now people are playing on 244 hertz monitors, right. you know, even. So, so I think, I think you know, ideally when you're playing an online competitive video game where reaction time matters, the, this, the people you play against should be in your region. You know, that's going to be better. But, you know, it only matters so much as it matters to people who play these games. So, mm -hmm. I don't even know. Can you even play Fortnite on a LAN these days? Or is it always up to a server? Oh. Like when these kids did the tournament, was it was it local or was it up to the net? You know, I don't know anything about Fortnite specifically. Okay. But my suspicion is that it's not the kind of game that you can host your own server. Right. I get that. Yeah. Because they have ways that they even though it's one of the it. most popular games right now, and it is uh, super competitive. Yet people aren't complaining about like uh, the fact that they can't run it competitively in a LAN type format. We should find out. We should I find think out those that kids the, that played the, the target audience game. for it 
is young enough that yeah. that's not really on the radar. Right. Well, that just goes to show, you know, like if you design games around the limitations, it won't matter. You know, you just admit that the limitations are there and design a good game. Cool. Well, Dan. Yes, Thomas. Thank you for taking your time. That was awesome. Today. Yeah. Uh, let's see. If people want to learn more about some of your projects, they can check out. Uh, ethics.market and uh, retronyms.com are two of the things. I also mentioned cast.market. Um, but yeah, ethics.market is what I'm working on right now. And then the parent, the company that spawned that is called Retronyms. And we uh, have built a bunch of music software over the years. And both, that has a weird spelling too. Kind yeah. Of, I mean, yeah. So R E T R O N Y M S. And then ethics is E T H E X dot market. Right. So if you're interested in exploring some uh, music composition on your iPads, be sure to check out any of the apps by the Retronyms. And if you're into cryptocurrency and are interested in a decentralized Ethereum-based exchange, you can check out ethics.market. Perfect, yeah. Cool. Thanks, Dan. Thank you. And we'll see you later. later.